So this is how this works. Um, you can type in questions. If you're not hearing me or seeing me, type that in and let me know. It looks like everything's working, though. And then uh, there are a bunch of files uh, that I've uh, uploaded on this uh, broadcast, too, that you can download uh, now or, or during uh, or after the broadcast, which will be stored on YouTube then. So we can have things to work with and make this a productive session. It's based on uh, an article that was just published in the Rose Croix Journal. You'll see a link to that on the right-hand panel. And that's also, you can download that article through the Rosicrucian Digest, uh, Rosicrucian Journal site. So it looks like you can see me and hear me, so success. <laughs> We've done this. This is my first hangout, so bear with me. Let's get into it. We're talking about, in this article, which I wrote because uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about how the alchemists actually worked in their meditations and what they actually did. There's a lot of strange notions, but uh, the, there was no special position with the alchemists in their meditations. They sometimes kneeled, sometimes sat, sometimes laid in the bed. Sitting in a chair or reading a book, that type of contemplation and concentration is what led into the meditations a lot of times, according to some of the, the journals of the alchemists. So it was a natural thing. There was no posture. There was no real preparation. In a lot of ways, the type of meditation they practiced was the contemplative prayer that was very popular in the Middle Ages, the Christian mystical prayer. And uh, But there were also other specific meditations uh, that the alchemists performed, mandalas or drawings. And all their drawings were really meditations in images and the powers uh, of the planetary powers, the alchemical operations were all encoded into the uh, different images and meditation uh, that they worked with. So if we look at the alchemical meditations themselves, we find a big variety, but a large part of them are just prayers. Prayers that they performed in the privacy of their own chambers, uh, also in the laboratory. And they were private things to bring the connection between the above and the below into their work, whether that work was transforming themselves, purifying themselves, or um, uh, working with uh, the forces of alchemy and uh, the operations of alchemy in the laboratory. So prayer in the laboratory is a very important thing. Uh, it connected them with the experiment, and it brought them into the realm of the divine powers, which they were trying to bring down. We're talking all alchemists from Isaac Newton and Paracelsus, and this type of meditation prayer, meditative prayer, was part of all the work on many different levels. To give you a feeling for that type of uh, type of work, I've, uh, one of the papers here is, is, uh, has many uh, original prayers by alchemists, and you'll see that in the... Uh, in the right-hand column there uh, for download, and uh, you'll you get the flavor of these prayers uh, in the way that they're supplementing to the divine to become part of their work. The idea of the quintessence is really essential in understanding how the alchemist uh, meditated. The quintessence is the very essence of something. So if a plant 
lemon balm or something like that. The essence, quintessence, is part of that thing that is extracted in the spirit or alcohol of the herb and is captured in the tincture. So that's what they're after, the, the quintessence, the very essence, the energetic essence of the product, the chemical, the herb or oneself. So the quintessence is an energetic essence or spark. Uh, Paracelsus called it the, the star in man. And we each of us have a quintessence. And then uh, there is the cosmic quintessence of God himself. So there's a quintessence, an essence in the universe too. And there's an essence of quintessence in us. And this is beyond the normal elements, you know, beyond matter and beyond the fire, water, air, and earth, beyond our bodies. It's an invisible spirit. And that's the way the alchemist thought of the quintessence. It was called the spirit of something. And in those days, spirit is how they described energy. So the spirit was an invisible force working at something, a spirit of a disease or which take us and it, it, they believe that each disease or each happening or each mood what whatever was going on in our lives were caused by these spirits which are energy psychologically or physical doesn't matter they were all called spirits so the quintessence is a fifth element beyond matter that is spiritual or energetic you can look at it that way too uh, there's a lot of interpretations but that's that's indeed how the alchemists thought of uh, energy in those days. They didn't really have a word for energy, or the, except it was an invisible force at work in a in any situation. So to start this, let's uh, let's read one of the um, original prayers by alchemists. This is actually a composite that I uh, put together, but uh, it does capture the spirit of the alchemists in the meditations. Almost singular and unspeakable presence, first and last in the universe, heighten the fury of my fire and burn away the dross of my being. Cleanse my soiled soul, bathe me in your awesome light, set me free from my past, cut me loose from my boundaries, unite me with the one thing hidden in my life, wherein is my only strength. Fill me with your presence, Allow me to see through your eye. Grant me entry into your mind. Let me resonate with your sacred will. Make me transparent to your flame and fashion me into a lens for your light only. Transmute me into an incorruptible stone in your eternal service like the golden light that surrounds you. So we can sense in that two quintessences, uh, two essences merging. And the alchemist is asking for this cosmic identity to come down into him and to make his essence or identity pure. So strikingly, the cosmic quintessence and the individual quintessence that we carry with us of who we really are and who and what is evolving in our consciousness and our personalities, just like it's evolving the whole universe, is the same quintessence. The divine quintessence and the human quintessence are the same. And the idea in, in all meditations and alchemy is to merge these two energies. The energy we have within us and how directed 
and how we become activated uh, and true to our own quintessence and the quintessence of the whole universe and what is behind the chaos and evolution of life and matter uh, and energy in the universe. It has the same hidden spark, the same hidden source. And when these become one, when we surrender our ego and allow our goals, our visions, and our work to be the same as the cosmic quintessence, what's behind nature itself, then we are in a line and expressing our true quintessence. And how that comes out in us can be through our talents and through certainly individualized ways, but the whole thing is that we are serving God. It's the old uh, grail question, you know, whom, do, whom does it serve? It serves not us, not our ego, and not our dominion of nature, but uh, the divine spark that is driving the whole universe. So that's kind of the philosophy that was behind most uh, sincere meditations in the Middle Ages, uh, the alchemists and their, and their contemplations. It was to become so purified and so true to their own quintessence, their own essence, that they were in, li in line uh, with the divine quintessence, the divine essence and what was driving in behind nature, hidden, was driving everything in the universe. So the, the alchemists uh, worked to make those two one, and that was through uh, the operations of alchemy, which are the same in the laboratory. Everything has its own quintessence, and that, that is meant to be brought out. That's where the power is at. That's where your power is at. That is where your confidence is at. That is where your expression and ability to transform yourself and your environment is at. That's where it comes from. And in plants, that is where it comes from. That same spirit of the plant that expresses itself in signatures and characteristics so strongly in nature. So uh, as the alchemists meditated, they, they were not really passive meditations like you see in many disciplines. Uh, they were active meditations in that the alchemist was trying to transform something or, or, um, or make, make something better or more perfect. So let's see if we have any questions here. I want to keep up with questions. Okay. If you have any questions on uh, anything on this topic or if you've read the article earlier and have questions, uh, just go ahead and post them, and I'll handle them as they come up. And therefore, you can participate in this a little more than just this this lecture going on. We are looking at um, different kinds of uh, meditations that were performed by the alchemists, and surprisingly, um, Christian meditations were were used by the alchemists extensively. Uh, they, were, they they didn't know any Eastern meditations. They didn't practice yoga. Or anything like that. So most of the uh, the meditations were Christian-based prayer, contemplative prayer, especially mystical prayer. And there are stages to that. Uh, basically, contemplation or concentration on something is how this process, alchemical prayer, begins. And it, it moves into, if you concentrate on something long enough, you get to know it. You get to know its essences, its signatures, uh, its properties, its energies, 
And that part of becoming familiar or focusing one's attention, the light of one's mind, into a specific topic is how this process starts. So it's very natural, and it very often started with an alchemist sitting at a table, reading a book, studying, and then being inspired by that, and trying to go deeper into it to find to find deeper essences and deeper uh, connection with the topic. So we do that all the time, but we don't carry it to the second phase. And we get inspired by something. You read the books of, of alchemists. If you don't take the time to contemplate what you've read and what has inspired you, if you just let it kind of sink in, that's not an alchemical way of working with books, not like not like the alchemists did. Books are extremely important because they were, they were gateways to light and inspiration and energy, and they carried uh, special nuances uh, that could not be find, found in just everyday life. They were the wisdom, condensed wisdom of the ages. And in those books, which they believed carried secret messages and, and secret symbols, they found themselves lost, really. If you become lost in a book, you know what it feels like to be totally absorbed in it, how, how freeing it is. If you don't take that to the second phase, which is uh, contemplation, in other words, the ideas are mixing around and, and you're carrying them with you everywhere you go and you're interpreting different things through that vision that you picked up in a book. And the next stage is to, right there and then to enter into a meditation on these ideas, not to lose it and uh, to continue. So, Alchemists ended up meditating right at their desk in their chairs uh, most of the time. And when they were looking for a specific connection with the divine or, or working in the laboratory and trying to uh, imbue an experiment with uh, th these energies, they would uh, enter into prayer, perhaps kneel down, or perhaps lay, lay on a couch and uh, go into this last phase of, uh, of what we would call meditation today. So we have a question from Jason Richardson. Thank you. Is active meditation, would you say that it is akin to a self-guided, visualized meditation? Uh, were symbols involved? Active meditation um, in alchemy had a vision in the mind or a goal, a specific goal. So, for instance, gold itself was a vision and you're working in the laboratory um, and you're starting to starting fermentation process, let's say, taking uh, metallic uh, compounds or even with, with herbs, taking herbs, and you uh, put them through the initial operations of heating and cleaning and purifying. And now you put, when they're ready for the fermentation stage to begin, you put them in an incubator. And the incubator can be your own mind if we're just talking about ideas or images, can be either one. The images of alchemy contain much varied information, and they're often the subjects of uh, meditation. So the incubator was a very special thing to the alchemists, and every laboratory had an incubator somewhere in it where the decaying materials were put, where new life was supposed to spring forth from that. Sometimes at the the incubator started with a very disgusting black, girly mass of, of chemicals or herbs, and eventually 
through the fermentation process, new bacteria would grow, the uh, the substance would become alive, and a new substance would be born in that in that life that was began in the uh, in the incubator. At that moment, it's very crucial to project a mental image of what you want and that to happen in that incubator, because the material has entered now the first matter, the chaos of decay and putrefaction, and it's bubbling away in there. And that same thing happens in us. All the rejected contents, all the hurt, all the um, emotional pain, all the chaos of our life going on is buried deep in us in that, in that internal incubator. And it is only through concentrating the light of our own minds that we can, at that moment, uh, access that or project the image into it. So we don't run away from personal chaos. We don't run away from the energies that are that are stirred up and through in life, we attempt to um, ferment them and to get, and to change them to take that natural energy and change it into something that we we want to work with. And that the, after that fermentation comes a distillation process where we work with uh, some uh, some of the energies that we're experiencing to purify them. And the final stages, of course, the production of the philosopher's stone or that final birth of, of what we're seeking. In the laboratory, the incubator was actually hidden away and there was always in the laboratory a tabernacle or an area where prayer was done. It was a sacred spot in the laboratory. Could be just a corner, could be a, part, a seat at a desk with, uh, with uh, books and things around, but it was dedicated to this kind of uh, incubator meditation, if you will, where where the alchemists would project into the experiment itself, and that process was very crucial. In fact, the incubator was hidden away somewhere in the lab; it wasn't in common sight. And if anyone walked into the room and, and happened just to gaze on the the box of the incubator, uh, the whole experiment was considered ruined, and it, the alchemists would start over again because the person had projected just by noticing the box, have projected their own consciousness into it, which ruined the experiment. It was no longer the guided, concentrated image that the alchemist was trying to achieve. So uh, that's the kind of uh, how they worked with images and how they worked with uh, uh, goals and visions. Very often it was an image. It could also be an idea too, just an idea of perfection. I think uh, I'm going to go through an alchemical meditation, the Azoth meditation. And uh, if you hold on just a second, please put some questions in, uh, so I, I know what you, uh, where you're confused, and uh, what kind of topics you'd like to talk about. And uh, I'll go get this uh, image I want to go through, and be right back. Okay, this is the uh, Azoth image, which is an example of the, the meditative emblem of an alchemist um, that they worked with. So it's it's a um, mandala type meditation where you just move through the the uh, images on the drawing. And like all mandalas, you, you start your imagery uh, right here at the center, which is the center of the mandala, which is actually, which is actually uh, the face of the alchemist at the center of the drawing. So, so in, in fact, some alchemists put a mirror here and meditated on the on the drawing like that. 
Now this this drawing is on your downloads colored drawing that uh, I restored and uh, uh, colored from old line drawings, uh, black and white drawings that I found in uh, in some alchemic books. Uh, it's by Basil Valentine and became very popular in the Middle Ages and re especially Renaissance uh, work. So what it is is a schematic of this whole process we've been talking about. It's the quintessence, if you will, with the three forces of alchemy, um, uh, which are uh, matter, corpus here, uh, shown as a cubic stone, and we have spirit, which is shown as the moon, and uh, anima, which is the soul, which is soul shown as the sun. So these three points, the triangle behind the emblem, um, are sulfur, mercury, and salt. The sun being sulfur, uh, and uh, mercury being associated with the moon, and salt being the corpus uh, or matter. So we have energy, basically. Uh, sulfur represents energy, uh, and the mind uh, represented by mercury or soul, and uh, and material reality or the, or the physical body or condition that we're working with, something that's already been created. So we're going to go back to this in a second. We'll just I'm just going to answer a few questions. You can print out that uh, that drawing for your use. There's also in the um, files here are uh, recordings of quietest meditation that were done by alchemists, actually done by alchemists in the Middle Ages, and, um, and a list of these steps on paper. So if we don't get to those during this hangout, we'll, we'll do those. Uh, you can do those offline. So we have a question from Alex Adair. Is the Philosopher's Stone an actual physical substance, a mental unifying concept or thought process, or perhaps a combination of both. Well, the, the Philosopher's Stone, which is the um, keystone of alchemy, uh, it, or touchstone that transforms anything, all, is actually all of these. Uh, uh, the, the laboratory uh, work with gold and the metals produces a red crystalline stone, actually, that is a reddish-violet color, which is typical of uh, gold as it, it forms compounds. And you can see examples of that in Europe, actually, of the stones. There are all kinds of stones in alchemy, vegetable stones and mineral stones and, uh, and metal stones. And the highest stone is this uh, red crystalline um, uh, hard stone created from... Um, from gold and the final purification and calcination of gold. Um, on the mental level, the Philosopher's Stone is this new perspective, this new confidence that comes together, where, you, where it's like a coagulation of wisdom. Beyond that, there's much more here that are only revealed really in initiations and alchemy, but there is a body of light, certainly, in what Paracelsus called the astral body that is a purified body produced from our own body, a second body, and that is the Philosopher's Stone. So this second body of light is able to transform itself and work through all different realms of, rea of reality, all energetic levels, uh, both uh, living and dead, and uh, just like Hermes was able to travel, so is this body uh, able to do that, and it's often produced 
for access and meditations. We have the Merkaba tradition of um, of an octagon encasing this as, as a vehicle of the soul. So there's lots of um, uh, impassioned writings about um, an actual body being produced from the matter, the decaying matter of our own bodies. It is released often at death or before in meditation where you have this astral experience where you're outside the body. So lots of writings about that and lots of um, effort in alchemy to to enter that final spiritual incarnation. Okay, we'll continue with a question from Daniel Johnson. When an alchemist would project an image onto an experiment, how is that done? The uh, production of an effect in matter, and uh, I've done this and other alchemists have done this, uh, can be best perceived, I think, through the signatures that evolve in the experiment. Um, it requires concentration, it requires, uh, and we're talking just about an image now, so that is an image of perfection. How would the metal, how would the herb, how would that uh, alcohol express itself, and what would, what would it look like? Would it be a glowing light? Would it, what would be the perfected essence of something? What would your body look like if it was perfect? That's the type of thing we're talking about. What would your uh, how would people see you if you were perfected? If you, how would they talk with you? How would they interact with you if you had perfect wisdom? And that's the kind of images that we're, we're projecting. What would a perfected piece of gold look like? Would it not only be incorruptible in the, in the material realm, but would it also have a light of its own and be incorruptible throughout the universe through all places and all times would it be beyond time so you have to uh, coalesce those ideas within yourself as as to what this image of perfection is it could be what is the perfect person in your life it could be uh, a loved one or that you're projecting or that, that doesn't even exist like a Beatrice uh, like Dante did project the image of a perfect woman who became his hermetic companion uh, and guided him through hell and heaven. That's the idea we're talking about. So uh, it, it's concentration to the point where most of us haven't been. It's called uh, the Eidolon, uh, which is eidetic uh, memory. The image becomes so real that it becomes part of your, uh, it feels real, that the image feels tangible, like a topa. In the um, in the Hindu tradition, where you project the image of a of a human being, and that human being becomes a servant, or the homunculus uh, in alchemy, it's the same type of projection into that that incubator. And many reports of real results, really spectacular uh, writings, but all around the world, um, the projection of an image into reality through alchemical means. And we'll go through the Azoth, and you can see how the operations of alchemy purify level by level until you get to that perfect projection and multiplication of the energies of the uh, of the image. Another question here by Umberto Mora: Is it possible to visit the plane of the quintessence using the conscious mind, or is it possible only using the unconscious mind? 
So uh, definitely the answer to that in alchemy and contemplative prayer is that you will be conscious of it. Uh, you will be using the conscious mind. But at the same time, the unconscious mind plays part of it. So we, we have to get to the point where unconscious and conscious are one thing. That, that's the birth of the philosopher's child, if you will. That's a sacred marriage. The unconscious is feminine energy, chaotic, feminine, being now, uh, soul, feelings in the present moment, and, um, and consciousness, which is a masculine uh, talent, if you will, uh, of logic and uh, awareness and spirit and moving forth to change things. Either path is totally wrong. You take one path or the other, and you will not uh, achieve success in alchemy. And that's not me that's saying that. That's many, many books, many, many alchemists. This is crucial. These two have to come together. There's, there's no way about that. I mean, uh, my website, alchemylab.com, is completely devoted to this kind of work in, in alchemy, uniting the masculine and feminine and bringing them together. And that means uh, in our consciousness, the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Uh, Carl Jung's alchemy is all about that, purifying that. And the the uh, sacred marriage to Jung, or what he called the Mysterium Canocciaeus, is the uh, the star moment where, where this new um, astral body we were talking about, or this golden light, coalesces and actually forms something physical and real in the world that is incorruptible on all levels and through time. So it is definitely possible to be conscious, but also aware at the same time of all the energies within you. So I think it's becoming conscious of the true energies, the true state of uh, something uh, that is the quintessence. And it's, it, it's always a profound experience to the alchemist. Another realm. Uh, Question here from Susan Matlock. I'm understanding here that whereas some meditative practices are aimed at conversation with uh, one's holy guardian angel, a chemical meditation's object is the materialization of something on this plane within the parameters of the highest good. That is one way uh, of expressing that. There's a uh, there's a practical goal. Even in uh, contemplative Christian meditation, there's this difference between the alchemist doing it and religious servants doing it. The alchemist is always trying to materialize or make something real. There's always a return. Uh, if you go up, go up into heaven in your meditation, in the highest, the highest uh, possible levels of heaven, and you meet God, you see God, you feel God's presence. You do not remain there in alchemy and in all the hermetic tradition. You return to earth to create something new in earth, to materialize it. Because the alchemists saw the evolution of uh, the universe as a materialization of energy into matter. And that uh, all the work, we don't remain in heaven. We don't remain at the, at the knee of God, if you will, in a passive state. We bring God's work into the world. It can be looked at as uh, that's the work we do for God, is to make God real, to make perfection take place in the material realm. It goes all the way back to the Emerald Tablet. The, the um, 
energy is perfected if it is turned into earth the experience is brought back told to others write written and shared in the real world because there's nothing in the real world that can't be perfected there's, there's work here to be done so it's not just passively enjoying the presence of God it's bringing the divine back with you whether it's in the laboratory it's in your own personality or it's uh, it's in the world in some way and that's the good work the highest good that motivates us and I can see that being a, a good description of that another question from Sisgan, sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right. What are the first signs that tell us that we started our own spiritual purification? The first signs that you're on an alchemical pathway, and really we're talking alchemy as an adult discipline, because you have to be uh, um, destroyed a little bit. Your, your life has to start falling down and coming to pieces all around you. You have to try to do something and it's like nature and the world are, are uh, blocking you every, everywhere you go. It's utter frustration as an adult to, to, uh, to not be able to be active in the world. And uh, it's usually ego that needs to be destroyed. It's usually ego that uh, is telling us to, I mean, in anything, career, accumulating money and uh, romance, uh, any human endeavor will fail, tends to fail, unless it's alchemically done, in other words, aware um, of all the opposing possibilities. We generate so much of our own nemesis in life by projecting our energies in unconscious ways and not deliberate ways uh, that we build uh, entities that come back against us, entities as being expressions of that energy that uh, come back at us and work at us. I mean, everyone's had that. Everyone has had things fail time after time and after time. Nothing's going right in your life. That's where alchemy begins for us on the personal level because we realize, it starts to make us realize that uh, there are forces in the universe and there's an unknown alchemy going on. There's something, there's a process going on that is beyond their ego. So that purification uh, that Amira is talking about is the purification and, and very uncomfortable at times. It's the burning away, the dissolving, the, the acidic surrender of ego and all that identity we put together uh, that I'm going to do this and I'm going to be that and uh, I'm going to be something and everybody's going to not love me or bow down to me or give me money. Or, and that is a false constellation of reality. And because it's false, it will be burned away by the universe. It's not until we're in alignment with the um, cosmic quintessence that things fall in line for us. And if it happens to be in, in alignment with your own personal quintessence and what you want to do in the world, that's wonderful. It's saintly. It's, it's uh, everything falls into place. Synchronicities appear everywhere that support your work. When the opposite has happened, that's a clue that you need purification. You need to stop. You need to look at it 
reflect, contemplate, concentrate, and meditate on, on these forces so they become conscious. And you can do that in therapy. Um, you can do that in churches. You can do that in support groups like the AA and, uh, and others. And, or you can do it uh, in your own personal alchemy work. But uh, that's never going to go away in your life uh, until that is purified and there's a realignment of your personal soul or efforts with the universal. I have another question here from Christian Leggett. Uh, what would be the alchemist's view of reincarnation? Would it be seen as a type of failure to complete the creation of the Philosopher's Stone? Self and uh, yeah, you're you're right about that, Christian. Um, the way the alchemists uh, looked at it, and, and Hermes has some amazing writings that say just that in the Corpus Hermeticum. You have this one chance, this one in life, to achieve the Philosopher's Stone, and it doesn't matter to the universe whether you do it or not, really, uh, because you'll be recycled through reincarnation. If they, I mean, if they didn't call it reincarnation, they felt it to be like a chemical process where you the constituents and the essences which are never destroyed soul is is never destroyed in alchemy which is essence and quintessence those forces always reclaimed just like they reclaimed in the laboratory and they the are reborn you could say um, in new matter in new salt and new constellations beyond time and space so the the process doesn't really rely on human beings. It doesn't rely on our species. Uh, it relies on life and consciousness. But there is the goal and the great work of alchemy is to achieve it in a lifetime. And that's what the alchemists were trying to do. That's what made them so driven when you look at, look at it in, in that way. So we have another question. Thank you for these questions. They're very, very interesting. Diana Foster writes, I'm new to alchemy and have been reading some things about it and periodically run across something called Ormus. Can you explain what it is? And Ormus is, uh, it deals with monatomic gold. So it's a, a perfection of gold or an alchemical process of working with gold. We have David Hudson's work, a modern alchemist in Texas who worked with volcanic soils to uh, to produce what he called monatomic elements, which are the most purified elements uh, that could be produced from something. They are so pure that they don't react to any chemical testing. Uh, you can't really say that you've got monatomic elements, and you have to take the word for people that you do. Ormus is like orbitally rearranged molecular masses that produce um, a type of white gold as an example but and um, it, it the, the history of it is interesting it goes back to ancient Egypt uh, with the Pharaoh Akhenaten who talked about white gold and they've even discovered uh, a storage facility which I visited of his in, in the Sinai Peninsula and there was supposedly this there were this white powder there I have worked with uh, uh, the white power of gold, trying to um, verify that it has special characteristics, but none of the samples that I've been given in, in my laboratory um, have ever um, 
produced anything startling. I, the only thing I've seen is some of the uh, white powder in a solution does uh, help plants grow. It definitely uh, is a great fertilizer uh, and, and brings out the life force in plants, and that may be significant. So I've not done a lot of work, lot of work with it. There's a lot of you know, possibility for fraud uh, in the Ormus community. I think some of them, the processes to make it are not as, as um, reliable, perhaps, or consistent as you want them to be. I mean, some people are making it in their swimming pools, and they, they, they bottle that water and selling it. Same processes of the sun and chlorine are making Ormus. Uh, so many ways to make Ormus, and there's so many um, compounds of monatomic elements that can't be detected. I mean, you want to be careful. Now, the, again, there's a history there, and there's a possibility that uh, there is white powder of gold that uh, has miraculous characteristics, just it's never been stumbled across in my laboratory or given to me to test. So I keep an open mind about it. Complis asks, how does alchemy interact with enlightenment? Uh, alchemy is enlightenment, really, if, if it's the process of perfection. So whatever we're talking about, if you can enlighten a coal, a lump of coal, what does it become? It becomes a diamond through the pressure and, and heat of alchemical operations. That's, I mean, a piece of coal enlightened is a diamond, and a, and a, a confused... Uh, instinctive, uh, emotionally overridden, and um, needy and angry person is that lump of coal too. And you enlighten that person in alchemy by taking him through these operations of alchemy in these stages of transformation and imbue him or her with wisdom. And uh, it is really the possibility of wisdom that that uh, makes alchemy possible, the yeah, possibility that we can learn and know and have direct experiences of reality when we get to a high enough con state of consciousness, uh, a Gnostic revelation, if you will, uh, a direct perception of alchemy and the principles of alchemy in nature. On the spiritual level, enlightenment is perhaps more in line with what you're, you're thinking the use of the word is, but uh, in alchemy, enlightenment takes place on all levels, the mental, the physical, and the spiritual level, too. And the spiritual enlightenment is just that enlightenment, becoming light in alchemy. There's just no doubt in, a, in alchemy that uh, the production of, the, of a body of light, an actual incarnated body, a conscious body, is seems to be the final goal, the final um, expression in the, in the universe. And that's what, from the Big Bang, that is where the universe uh, is heading, that transformation of light and energy into matter and back again. Okay. Henry Nowaki uh, asks, is the quintessence the same as the soul? I think for all intents and purposes, it is uh, in most thinking, most traditions. The quintessence being that fifth element that is beyond material elements, beyond fire, water, air, and earth, is 
that the hidden soul that we can't really put our finger on, but it's very present and it's a very powerful force in alchemy. Not only do we have souls, every single thing in the universe has a soul. Uh, a rock has a soul. Everything in the alchemical view is very animated and driven by its quintessence and wanting to become what it what it should be in the universe. So what was projected at the Big Bang, if you will, of what that thing will be when it's perfected. So quintessence and soul are, are the same thing. And the efforts to, um, to bring out the quintessence are the same in all traditions, religious traditions too, about transforming the soul. The idea is that uh, at one time uh, we were perfected. We were all one, one soul and we were one mind and we got split apart when the universe came into reality when when this constellation if you will of reality came into being this universe we were split into these two opposing forces love and hate male and female positive and negative however you want to look at it our soul was split to two that's very much a religious idea but it's very much an alchemical idea too and all the operations of alchemy and all the religions in the world and all the prayers and, and uh, rituals are about bringing those two pieces back together as one again, how they should be in a perfected universe. So it's going through an explosion and a division of the one thing into two. And that creates energy in the universe, those, those opposing dualities, male and female, we all know how much energy that creates. And positive and negative, that's electricity. And, and uh, everything, that's one of the first things you realize when you try to understand what's really going on, is that everything has opposites. And opposites are what drives everything. And the alchemists believe there's a universal way of working with that. Another question from Alex. In the book, The Secret Symbols of the Rosicrucians, 16th and 17th centuries, are symbols also layered in an alchemical manner along with spiritual and philosophical layers. Oh, yes. Uh, the the um, Rosicrucians were alchemists, and especially in the 16th and 17th century. And uh, almost all the uh, symbols of the al uh, alchemists are symbols of the Rosicrucians, many of them were originated from Rosicrucian writings, Basil Valentine. There was a huge contribution uh, by the Rosicrucian movement in the middle 16th century and early uh, 1600s and early uh, 1700s. It was the Christian Rosencrantz immersion into, um, into common uh, knowledge. And it does indeed seem that there was a secret group that were of alchemists who were Rosicrucians, and they were also philosophers. So they weren't just the puffers, the, the alchemists who were working to make gold, you know, to change lead into gold, which, uh, you know, a good part of the alchemical efforts back in the uh, 1500s. The Rosicrucians added something, and they added this whole spiritual dimension, and they added it most significantly, uh, this idea that once you going to heaven, the idea is to return to earth. So the Rosicrucian focus on the suffering of fellow men and the suffering in the world and the imperfection uh, in the world. 
and the chaos in the world. That was really new to alchemy. What's not there in Egyptian alchemy as much as it is after the Rosicrucian movement. The symbols are the same. The rose cross is the symbol of the unfolding of the stone in the heart, and that's where it's born in, in the, uh, uh, the heart being a union of uh, uh, mind and emotion. So uh, you can interpret uh, Rosicrucian symbols alchemically and vice versa. You can re interpret um, alchemical symbols in a Rosicrucian way. Martin Smith has a question. Besides listening here and reading the attached doc, where does one start studying alchemy? I think, uh, well, there's a list of recommended starting points attached uh, here in your files. A lot of websites to start, start at operated by different peoples. Uh, the Rosicrucian teachings is, is a, a very good way to start. Uh, there's different uh, programs and study groups. Uh, there's a lot of Facebook uh, groups uh, where a lot of discussion. We have like 20,000 members in the Al alchemy study groups on uh, Facebook, and there's a lot of interest in how to begin this work. And the Rosicrucian uh, websites and you know, all the active conversations are very good places to start this. You know, don't don't necessarily give a guy who calls him an alchemist calls himself an alchemist. You mean the bar or something? You know, don't, don't give him money to change lead into gold. It happens all the time. There was just there was just a case in Reno where a guy was in a bar and uh, he met an alchemist, and the, the alchemist was changing one dollar bills into hundred dollar bills for everyone there, and uh, he did it quite a quite a few times and uh, a couple people said he would change <laughs> change the money in bulk if they brought in five thousand dollars worth of one dollar bills and he'd change them into hundred dollar bills and then but of course he had to go back to his room to do it and he never returned to the bar so somebody actually gave gave away five thousand dollars and have that happen so just don't be gullible you know, use your, use your gut to, to understand and feel the genuineness of, of the group or the person who is trying to teach you alchemy. Because unfortunately, there's still puffers in the world who, who uh, study alchemy based on ego motives and, uh, or just to be a guru, just to be someone that people admire. And there's all kinds of things going on. You know the human condition and just be uh, aware. Is the principle of uh, sympathetic vibration related to alchemical practices? Suli wants to know, and that, that's a good question. Uh, it is indeed sympathetic vibration or um, uh, ideas of uh, sympathetic magic are alchemical and, and do seem to have their source in alchemy. Uh, a lot of New Agers have taken this to other places that have nothing to do with alchemical methods. I, I don't, I, the idea of the word as a vibration in nature is very real, I think, very true. And even if you look at the Big Bang, uh, the, the sound of the Big Bang is the word that created uh, the universe, and that's the idea of the Logos. But um, you can abuse that idea and, and make it too simple. If you have a perfect vibration, I think that the uh, alchemical work takes place through that. Um, let's look at our Azoth drawing. Okay, 
there's there's uh, in the Azov there's uh, seven steps of transformation, starting with lead and the planet uh, Saturn here. But anyway, it starts with calcination and works through these different operations and dissolution, separation, conjunction, uh, fermentation, and distillation, and the final coagulation, which shows a androgynous youth emerging from a grave. But read the paper that I've attached uh, to this, download it about this drawing, and understand these symbols before you do the meditation, of course, because the idea is to focus here and have all these symbols that come together, and they will. They'll come together in an amazing meditative experience if you practice this meditation, which is described. And I think there's a recording there, too. Yeah, I did make a recording of this, this meditation that, that you can listen to, and it's in the documents for this, uh, this hangout. So there are actually, and they're even numbered, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stages to get to this final stage of gold, which is the metal gold. There's an eighth step here, and that is actually uh, through base of Valentine to return to the conjunction, to return to Earth. In some drawings, the sun is actually shown here, which means that's the final step out there. So it's, it's a hidden uh, eighth step in this drawing, which is explained online there. But what that means is that there are like seven notes, um, the, the seven notes of the octave. And when you get to that final seventh note and increase the vibration, then that becomes the next note, the complete octave. And that becomes the next note of a, of a new octave at a higher level of vibration. That's the music of the spheres. and uh, and the ideation, uh, uh, projection of energy into the universe. Uh, Christian has another question. Can you speak more about the crossover of the figures in Toth and Hermes, Enoch and others, and how they may have influenced more modern forms of alchemy? Well, we have in the Egyptian teachings uh, where the alchemists trace the origins of their work uh, the idea that there was this single teacher who brought alchemy and and the sciences, brought wisdom to the planet, and that, that was Toth. Toth became the Roman Hermes, uh, or the Greek Hermes, I'm sorry, and the Roman Mercury. And uh, Enoch was another part of this tradition that there was one teacher who survived through time all the way up into modern times, according to some legends. But I think that it's more of a... Um, analogy about how the human spirit has incarnated this desire for perfection and it's been taught down through the ages and uh, it's just in other words assigning that to a material person christ could be part of that uh, buddha that lineage of enlightenment which is very similar in all these ways basically the teachings of Toth and hermes are where it all started is about two levels of reality. There is above and below. There is the in-between where we're at, uh, where the energy and matter come together. You can look at it as energy above and matter below. So, or lightness of light above and darkness below. That is how they express this vertical reality. And they also were very careful to show that there is a horizontal reality of uh, masculine and feminine or uh, positive and negative or moving that way and moving this way 
in opposite directions and that all these come together on this cross of being where we find ourselves and the point that the alchemist seeks is that point at this very center of the cross the cross of being where we unite above and below divine and earthly and we, we unite masculine and feminine within ourselves to that single point within the cross and this is where the rose is at in the Rosicrucian teachings that is the uniting of all the opposites that come together and that is perfection that is where the gold will grow and that is where the rose being the highest vibration uh, in, the, in the Bach flower theories uh, of any other flower so that's how they all tie in and I think I, uh, in my research I've done a lot of research about this um, whether these were the same man I've been to Egypt trying to find out if there were documents passed on but there is this tradition, undeniable, that uh, somehow the chemical teachings were handed down through different incarnations of the same person, or perhaps just different mental rebirths of the same ideas through time, uh, to the point where it's called the perennial philosophy, this idea that there are opposites that have to come together, and that there is an above and a below, and to study the interactions between above and below, and also the interactions between masculine and feminine, between consciousness and unconscious. So it's an all-pervasive, um, powerful discipline. Another question here, uh, Mike Dagas, as um, one achieves this perfected state, will he see others perfected around him also? Uh, that's a good question. In, in many ways, as you become perfected, you attract others who are also perfected. It's the ancient idea that it takes a seed of gold to make gold. So it takes one person all of a sudden to change reality, to make it possible for others to follow. And that's also part of uh, this tradition of uh, Toth Hermes and Enoch and uh, others, that they were this uh, seed of gold on the planet. And, and that makes it possible for more to follow. And for more synchronicities to occur that connect these seeds of gold. Just like pieces of gold, if you cut them apart, they have a temperate uh, tendency to clump back together, especially if you put mercury uh, with them to make a, a solid piece. So there are connections created between perfected individuals or enlightened individuals, I think. And it also means that you will identify or resonate with others on the path. That happens uh, many, many times in, uh, in the evolution of person's soul, uh, that these soulmates come who are on the same path and at the same vibration. So I, I hope uh, we're running over a little bit here, and I apologize. I've given you some great resources here, and I urge you to download them that will help you um, expand on the article I've written. Um, there's also a link in the article itself to uh, some more, more documents and actual recordings of the Quietist Meditations, uh, which was a kind of Christian contemplation that was uh, popular in the Middle Ages and many alchemists practiced it. It, it was uh, created by uh, uh, Miguel Molinas, who was a uh, Spanish monk. He wrote a little book called The, the um, Spiritual Guide, and he just put down some spiritual principles on how to connect with God 
in prayer. And it's a very small book, but it became a bestseller in Europe, if you will. I mean, it was uh, circulated everywhere in, in 15 different languages, as a matter of fact. It became rivaling the Bible in, in people reading it. It was so revealing to people. And the church promoted it at first, but then they realized that uh, Malinus was starting a, a movement where people could perfect themselves or enlighten themselves or connect with God in the privacy of their own homes. They didn't need the church anymore. Well, as soon as the church fathers realized that, uh, they uh, started to uh, excommunicate uh, Malinus and also ban his books, all his books, even after he died because they let the cat out of the bag, you know, and uh, they don't, they weren't able to control spiritual perfection and uh, they, they, they publicized that that was possible. So the, those recordings are there too. That's from a webinar I did on the, on the uh, quietest movement. And you can also read the, the writings of St. Teresa of uh, Avila. Uh, who was part of that movement, a big uh, big part of that. So the meditation techniques, which is a four-step quieting, basically, and a reunion with God and divine, is very alchemical. And you can see that these four steps are part of the operations of alchemy, too. Well, I've got another question here from Alex. Attempts to meditate upon symbols, etc. Do you have any recommendations on how to cut through the white noise that manifests in the deeper level of attempted meditation. This white noise uh, problem is uh, sometimes it is an actual noise. But often white noise is also images. You get lots of images that are interfering with the uh, meditation. And it's all extraneous stuff. And uh, the really, uh, the more you fight it or the more you become aware of it, the more it destroys your meditation. So. I think that, that that noise, if you either can ignore it or you can find a way uh, through it by, you know, going with it, going with, if it's a white static noise, then that's chaos. Pure chaos, a good way to enter meditations uh, because in the chaos, if we look at white noise as chaos and all these images and chaotic stuff going on in the mind as you attempt to meditate, that's really a doorway, and uh, this may seem hard to accept, but if you enter the chaos and just go with it, flow with it, and let it go on for a while in meditation, that becomes the meditation. The curious thing is that there is, as we know, mathematics and physics and chaos, there's strange attractors to that, where there's order in chaos, and eventually through that white noise, whether it be imagery or, or actual sounds, there will, will come uh, order, some type of order, some type of dominant image, perhaps some some words or words that uh, that are there in the chaos. So we run from chaos, but chaos is essential. It's the first matter. It's where all the work begins. Now the question with Thomas and uh, this will be our last, Thomas Peisel. Thank you so much, Dennis. Uh, question, do you see a connection between lucid dreaming and the Philosopher's Stone and in developing this second body? Um, lucid dreaming where you uh, know you're awake 
and move around in this body, I think is a doorway to to uh, the second body or this body of light, this astral body. Uh, many of the techniques uh, from some of the uh, esoteric groups encourage lucid dreaming to uh, create, help create this body or help experience this body. I think uh, I think there is a connection there, but it's not the same. Lucid, the lucid dream, the body that moves through under your control and can sometimes be projected out of the body is not the same as the astral body, body which is a totally different experience, but many traditions say lucid dreaming can lead to it. Thank you, Susan uh, and Martin uh, and all of you for your comments and participating in this hangout, which is my first, and uh, we'll do this again sometime. It's, it's kind of unusual. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate your attention. God bless and find God. <laughs>